I'm Colin Ellis, and for 30 years I was a permanent employee of other people's cultures. What I wanted to know more than anything else during that time was how to create a great culture myself. So I wrote a book called Culture Fix, which is the world's first how-to guide for building great workplace culture. And in this, the Culture Makers podcast, I get industry leaders from around the world to expand on the ideas I wrote about in the book and to get them to share actionable things that you can do to create a great place to work yourself. And remember, listening is good, but action is better. Everybody, welcome to another Culture Makers podcast. I am delighted today to be joined by Dr. Rachel Novak. Uh, Rachel has a significant experience in building vibrant cultures in journalism, research and development and marketing. As well as having a PhD in agricultural science, she's also an award-winning investigative science journalist whose work has been discussed in US congressional hearings, which I'm definitely asking her about. Now, as Director of Research, Marketing and Communications at the University of Melbourne, Rachel leads the development of practices that you tools of modern marketing to scale research translation. As you'll hear, she is originally from Bath in the UK. I'm going to talk about that in a minute as well. Bath in the UK, but has also lived and worked in the US and Australia. And she joins me now. Hello, Rachel. How are you? Hi, Colin. I'm good. So very quickly, to me, it's Bath. To you, it's Bath, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. With, a, uh, with an R in there. Yes, absolutely. I actually, actually <laughs> looked this up because I'm fascinated by this. And so I looked it up a few years ago because I have a friend from Kidderminster who's actually not posh, but it sounds a bit posh. And I'm like, oh, by the way, Kidderminster is in, in the Midlands in the UK. And, and so I looked it up and apparently about 300 years ago, Londoners thought it would be trendy to elongate vowels. And that's how it became Bath oh. and not Bath. There you go. Yeah. yeah, typical Londoners always doing their yeah. own thing. Um, so Bath in the uh, Bath. In the, now, now, now I don't know what to say. You're going to be <laughs> an uncouth Northerner, but it's Bath. Um, so, so that was home, Rachel. Did you did you grow up, study there? Is that where it all started? Oh, I grew up there um, and then left at 18 and went up to Leeds uh, to study uh, before setting off to Australia and the US and, and Germany and so forth. But yes, I grew up there till I was 18. And I think until then, the furthest I'd ever went from home would have been, you know, tens of kilometres or miles, as we used to call them. So I, I started out in this, this small pocket of the world where we, you know, running shoes were called daps. You know, there was all these, you know, we, we ate lardy cakes, we drank <laughs> cider, not beer. Can you imagine? Um, so this, you know, quite a sort of, you know, sort of not a village. I lived in Bath, but this quite this sort of local local living, really, till I was 18. It's got an Edith Blyton quality about it. We ate cakes and we drank cider. Obviously, a more adult <laughs> version of Edith Blyton. <laughs> Wasn't yeah. quite like that, but OK. <laughs> Closest I got to cider was drinking cheap cider on the back of a coach, but that's a whole other podcast. So so yeah. Leeds is is in Yorkshire, so that's kind of the east of England. So is, what did you study there, Rachel? I studied agricultural science, um, both as an undergraduate and then went on to do my PhD there. Um, it was, you know, I had, I had initially wanted to be a farmer, which is a, a tricky thing to do in England if you're a female, or in those days if you were female, and even more so if you weren't born into a farming family. Uh, so the next best thing was to study agricultural science. The degree I did was unusual in that in the third year, you just started doing original research, which was just quite amazing. Um, and then I just sort of fell in love with research and did this quick pivot and then started out on a research career. One thing when people talk about the um, uh, kind of university experiences, I, I never had all my 
myself I'm too dumb for university I never asked this question so I thought I would ask yeah. it while, while I've got you on the on the podcast is do you work very much on your own do you work in groups do, do is this is this kind of where you get that real sense of kind of that early culture development I, I suppose when you're working with others Rachel that's really interesting as a researcher because the sort of narrative still is the lone genius researcher making discoveries the reality is that you are part of a especially in the sciences okay and in agricultural science less so in the humanities but you're typically part of a quite a big team that often extends beyond the boundaries of the university that you're working at so you might also be as i was collaborating with people in different cities in different countries on your research so yes it is it is very international and it is very collaborative and nothing like it's portrayed yeah yeah, now, now I'm fascinated by that whole kind of process of, because you're mixing not only, you, you're mixing social cultures with people, as you said, from, from yeah. all around the world, but obviously then you're trying to develop your own kind of team culture within the work that you're doing. And then I imagine there are different groups that you have to work with as well. So you've got all of these subcultures that kind of are immersed in social culture as well. That sounds like it's a, a topic worth exploring yeah. all of itself. And, and it's, you know, when I was doing my PhD, it's still people really hadn't got to grips at that so hadn't started to get to grips properly with how you're going to get that new research knowledge out of the universities to where it can be used but increasingly universities are thinking about that and that now means that those research teams have to not just include the academic research they have to include business development commercialization comms and marketing so it's it's spread even more you know the skill sets are required to actually get the research from you know source to sink did the farming dream die Rachel or was there a realization that perhaps it kind of the pathway wasn't there and and, and you chose to do something else once you left it, it never died because my PhD allowed me to spend a lot of time on farms and you know and and you know I still have even though I live in the you know in, in Melbourne City like in, you know <laughs> I'm right in this. I'm not in the CBD, but just one out. You know, I have a border collie chickens. You know, I just have a, quite a menagerie here. Um, so it's, it's definitely not died. Um, and yeah. No, it's there. And I just, you know, I have this still, this deep, deep interest in agriculture and in particular, in, you know, ag tech is just fascinating areas. I've worked more in the digital side of things. So if I walk past the house when I'm out for a stroll in Melbourne, there's sheep in the front garden. It, it could be your house. <laughs> it could be. Uh, we don't actually have a front garden, but I have to say, we'll say, oh, can we just squeeze in one more sort of, you know, I mean, and the chickens are, you know, useless. So, you know, I don't know the last time they actually laid an egg, uh, but it gives me an excuse to toss around straw bales you know so it's still there sort of we all need that excuse Rachel we all need that excuse so so what was the first job post-university you know kind of where did you where did you land first well um the first job post-university would have been you know a PhD that would be the sort of because you are employed I was employed as a research fellow to do that and then after that um I did a couple of what we call postdocs which are postdoctoral fellows and so I was a, a Queen Elizabeth fellow to Australia and then an Alexander von Humboldt fellow to Germany so these are and that's how research academics sort of earn their living in the early days you're on these these contracts which are called fellowships and often overseas sort of moving around so those would, would be counted as my first proper job my first job ever was actually as a tea lady in a munitions factory 
in Bath. It was brutish, you know, it was like this sort of, you know, completely sort of, it's a bit of a toxic male environment with, you know, the page three stuff everywhere. It was just really awful. The only sort of good side of it, I have to say, is I could push that trolley through doors that said, you know, high level security. (laughs) (laughs) And if you had a tea trolley, you could just go through. So that was was an interesting um, look at another culture, I have to say, but not, not, not much fun. Uh, that tea trolley, that reminds me of carry-on movies. Also, if there are any spies listening to the podcast, all you need is a tea trolley and you can get anywhere by the sounds yeah, of things. Get wherever you like, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, these, these are all, I guess, our little grounds for learning about culture. Just just quickly jumping back to your your kind of fellowship. So a Queen Elizabeth fellow to Australia. So what, what, what did that involve, Rachel? It involved coming to Australia, um, you know, setting up, I was at Monash. You are there to be part of a team to do original research. What I was looking at was, and this came from my PhD, was looking at um, body clocks. So what are those mechanisms that animals and humans have that allow them to know what time of day it is and what time of the year it is? Okay, so we won't take it totally for granted, but, you know, except for when we've got jet lagged, okay, and that's when your body clock is completely sort of disrupted. Uh, But those mechanisms that get you to wake up at a certain time for hungry at a certain time, when it comes to um, farm animals, a lot of our uh, livestock, it also, um, the timing mechanisms affect when they start breeding, which affects when you get the lambs, which affects the price you're going to get for the lambs. So you can see there's a sort of commercial interest in this as well. So it was doing this sort of research. At that point at Monash, I actually started working also on biomedical research and perhaps the one of the most interesting pieces we did was looking at how that that body clock starts working in newborn babies okay because this is a problem that anybody's ever had kids has it's like these these babies don't know what time of day or night it is they're asking for food and stuff at the wrong time and that was a fantastic bit of work work and we could um show that this body clock is just not functional till about eight months uh, eight, eight weeks it's just not there um it sort of starts coming in at about four weeks but it's it's sort of going off doing its own thing so the clock's running but it's not in step with the outside world and it's about eight weeks it starts getting in step with the outside world so your baby is never going to sleep through the night um consistently before eight weeks just give up on it you know because i know people do these heroic things to try and get babies to sleep it's just not going to happen but i mean i feel like there's a whole podcast just on body clocks i'm fascinated by this I'm, I'm trying to keep my mind on my job here of doing the podcast but I'm thinking yes, my yeah. teenage son his body clock's gone the other way now like he has no idea but that's a whole other thing yeah well they talk about sleep hygiene you know, and this idea that you've got to sort of start you know managing those cues that you get to tell you what time of day and it's a lot of it's to do with light you know so if you ever you know come back from the UK to Australia, it's just really important to start getting exposed to bright outside light during the Australian day. So you can, you know, re-entrain quickly to your local um, day and night, not the UK day and night. Well, if I ever start travelling again, I'm definitely going to keep that in mind with the old uh, jet lag. When did you start writing then, Rachel? When was the, I, I mean, I know you're writing as part of your, you, you, you kind of work anyway, but when did you become a writer? That's really interesting, you know, um, because... Interesting, at school, I was just appalling at writing. I was really, really bad. Um, and, you know, so so, I, I, so what happened, I did these two postdocs, and I sort of peaked a bit early, to be quite honest, because once you've done your two postdocs, you've got to go and then set up your own lab, and that means settling down somewhere and choosing a country, a city, you know, finding the job. 
Um, so the, the, the trigger to become a professional writer was really two things. I'd, I'd sort of picked a bit early, wasn't ready to, to, to set up my own lab at that point, um, but also becoming really aware of this sort of wealth of knowledge and innovation that sat within the universities and wasn't getting out to the outside world where it could be enjoyed and used. So that was the trigger to become a professional writer. But I actually had dabbled in it a few times before then. So I did various things that, you know, I wrote about being a, a graduate researcher and what it meant to be moving from country to country. I wrote about that very early on for New Scientist magazine. Um, at one point, I had uh, between working as a postdoc and working as a, a journalist, I, I went to the States to study writing at, at Johns Hopkins, but I actually took a job as a cleaner for six months. And I can remember writing that, wrote that up for um, one of the local Australian <laughs> newspapers. And it was, you know, it's just hilarious because if you're a cleaner, people just assume, or some people, not everybody, some people will make assumptions about what that means about your intelligence, your, you know, aspirations. It's very, very interesting where some people just see straight through it and see you as the person. And so I wrote a bit about that experience and also the sort of the pleasure of being in somebody else's house and sort of really getting to see how people live. You know, it was uh, quite interesting. So I guess it's, um, you know, I learned to write, you know, this idea that people are natural writers. I don't buy it because I certainly wasn't, but I think I'm pretty good at it now. But it was just getting my head down and learning. And so you actually became a journalist and and, and kind of at that point it became, you know, went from something that you were learning and you said you went and studied how to do it and it became a profession. Yes. And it was, um, you know, and I went in thinking I was going to go and uh, I really had this idea I was going to um, be sort of an evangelist for for research and science. And of course, you quickly realise that that's not the role of a journalist. Your role is to be, you know, to speak truth to power is what they say, to to help people be, you know, the, the masses be self-governing. You've got to be really uh, critiquing what you're reporting on. So I, I made that shift very quickly into really being a very serious sort of investigative science journalist and, and sort of really, you know, looking at how science was working, looking at the new discoveries and what were, what were going to be the implications, the ethical implications, the social impact of this. This, this new research. And, and that's really important because our, our scientists are very much, um, you know, they're designing the future for us, really. So people need to know what's happening and they need to know what those implications might be. And so this is the this is the mid-90s, early 2000s, which I, you know, I yeah. was working in newspaper environments, although completely different oh, worlds, yeah, yeah. Uh, around that time. How did, how did you find the culture? Certainly for me, it was fast-paced. Uh, it was very demanding. But, you know, certainly the people that I worked with, there was a real kind of desire to be part of that. Was, was that the same for you? This was in the US as well, I think I'm right. Yeah, yeah. So mainly the US sometimes working for UK publications. I guess in terms of culture, the one thing that um, is really unclear to people outside of journalism is because somebody gets a byline, okay, and the assumption is that person's done all the work. In fact, you're like a sort of sports person. You've got this whole team behind you. So you've got editors and, you know, often there'll be layers of editors. So there'll be somebody who you're talking about the ideas with. There's somebody who's putting in the final full stops and commas, you know, doing the design on page. You might have a lawyer coming in to do a legal check so it really is um teamwork it happens very quickly you know the idea of agile being sort of you know we still talk about it as if it's new but you know you can't there's many professions there's no other way of doing it but with an agile framework you've got to work quickly you're on a deadline you know if there's a tsunami or you know some sort of natural you know event you've got to move really really quickly and you've got to iterate really quickly so you'll be 
putting that copy down as quickly as you can, then handing it on some to somebody else to critique. So there's all those things about doing work that's very transparent, um, being open to feedback, you know, begging people for feedback. There's no time to say, oh, that is a really fantastic piece. I, you know, you can't do a praise sandwich if you're on a tight deadline. It's just like, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. Fix it up, you know. So those are the sorts of things I learn. And I, th- I think I still use them. You know, people who have worked for me have sort of said, hmm. <laughs> You know, I didn't expect to have to iterate everything so, so quickly. And it's like, oh, sorry. And and people normally like it, but, I, you know, I have had the feedback. Could you give us a warning beforehand? Because like, I'm just used to that way of working. Um, but, you know, people normally get to like it, I think. But uh, so now I tell people, you know, that's that's how I how I work. You can be too agile. I'm so glad you said that about agile because, I, I, you know, when I was uh, working in, in newspapers, we used to put out you know, the seven editions. I think it was six or seven editions a day. It was crazy. Which means yeah, that yeah. the front page could change literally every 30 minutes. And, and there was a real, and again, these were all highly emotionally intelligent cultures. There, was, uh, there wasn't low safety. It was just the pace and you, you kind of had to stay with the pace. So you either, you know, it was one of those things is you either find a way to survive or this isn't for you. But, yes. but at all times, kind of outside of those key deadlines, and, you know, I'm interested to know if you found the same, Rachel, is there was lots of camaraderie. There was lots of kind of collaboration. We were creative, just generally, we made the time for creativity, you know, and, and problem solving and for me definitely I still credit it was a really good grounding in what culture meant and also the impact that I as an individual could have on it yeah 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 no no I, I mean that's definitely my experience it was um yeah it was an incredibly creative innovative um supportive environment you know I have I can never I can't think of it partly you know it's because you're also you're so exposed you know as a, if you work as a journalist if you're working as a good journalist there will every so often somebody's going to say I want you fired you should be sacked and I have had people <laughs> who have gone to my boss and said Rachel never should be fired she should never have written that <laughs> and then in, you know, five years later, they've connected with me on LinkedIn. They seem to have forgotten. <laughs> um, and that just happens because you are, you're speaking truth to power. And power doesn't like that sometimes the power will come after you. So it has to be a supportive environment. You know, I've never heard of a, and I've never done it with my own people, of, you know, hanging somebody out to dry, you know, um, you know, you've got to get things right. You know, I don't think I've ever, you know, I've never had a substantial error in a story. And I hope that, you know, I never will have because that's really important. Your reputation depends on that. So when, when was the move to Australia and, and was it always Melbourne, Rachel? Uh, yeah, so I, I've moved twice. So I came here as um, as a researcher and then went to the States for 10 years and um, worked as a journalist. And then at the turn of the century, I came back to Australia. It has always been Melbourne. Yes, very definitely. Now, before you, before you, I, I, I said I was going to ask you about this. The U.S. congressional hearings. Just tell us a little bit about what happened there. Well, it, you know, it's happened more than once, to be quite honest. Um, but the one that is most relevant to Australia, I think, is uh, a story that I broke. Um, about, it's very relevant to COVID, actually. A lab at the Australian National University um, with researchers collaborating with CSRO were working on a contraceptive, an infectious contraceptive, contraceptive for mice. Okay, now, you know, we have this mice plague at the moment. Okay, <laughs> we often have mice plagues. So what a great idea, create something that spreads from mouse to mouse and stops them having babies. Okay, fantastic idea. To do this, they were genetically modifying a virus to try to make it more transmissible. What they found they did is that they also managed to make it more um, 
deadly. So they ended up creating a virus in mice, okay, that um, was more likely to spread and more likely to kill them even if they'd been vaccinated, okay. Now, this was astounding because at the time, and it seems difficult to think that we didn't know this, there was always this sort of un, often unspoken, but this assumption that nature would have produced the most deadliest um, microorganisms possible. We couldn't better it by genetically modifying it. Okay, that was the sort of the assumption. And lo and behold, these guys had done that. I mean, it's really interesting because I was in the lab, just, you know, general, just, you know, going around chatting to people. And I can remember the moment one of them said, should we tell her? And I said, tell me what? You know, I don't know if we should tell her. And they were, um, they were really concerned about what they'd done um, and weren't quite sure about, you know, who do they tell? Because this was clearly, you know, it's called now called dual use um, technology, this idea that you could be producing something for, um, you know, a positive impact, but it could have this unintended uh, negative impact. And of course, when that story went, it broke, it just went global and that was discussed everywhere. But there'd be more than one, actually. I just can't remember all of them. You know, some work I did in the US, um, which again is in the infectious disease area, was on um, some, there was a, a very famous organ uh, transplant surgeon who was trying to um, solve the problem of this um, lack of organs for transplant. And so his idea was to use baboon organs. Now, you could see this, you know, sort of some things that might be cause for concern. One might be, you might think, ethically, is it right to you know, sacrifice a baboon for a human, that's one thing. Um, but the thing that the transplant surgeon wasn't aware of because he was a specialist, um, and, you know, again, this is where science journalists come in, they have to be know about lots of specialities, is he wasn't aware of the what was happening there in terms of the risk of, you know, generating new infectious diseases. And, we, you know, everybody knows now that these new um, um, diseases often come, so SARS and possibly COVID often come from non-human sources. So what better way to hurry that along than to take an organ that is probably full of you know baboon viruses and then put it into a human who just happens to have their immune system suppressed to stop them rejecting the organ and you can sort of see you know this is almost like the perfect storm of generating um new new zoonoses so these these viruses that jump from non uh, humans to humans and, and potentially cause pandemics so that was another piece I, I i broke that story and i have to say when you break a story it's not that like i'm sitting there and i'm thinking thinking, oh, that's, uh, <laughs> that sounds a bit sus. It might be that, but it might also be people coming to you and saying, look, I'm really worried about what, and in this case, that's what happened. An infectious disease specialist said, look, I'm really worried about what they're doing. Nobody's hearing us when we're saying this is of, of concern. And so then my role as a journalist was to raise that concern and get people to take it serious. And it ended up in um, an 18-year moratorium on, on um cross-species organ transplants. And now there's been technical ways around that to reduce the risks. So, uh, so you've been in Melbourne now for well, since by the looks of it, since two two thousand and thirteen for the second time around. Yes. So all of the roles research based. Now you're at the, you're at the University of Melbourne now and head of research, marketing, and communications. Is research kind of the thing that that draws you in, Rachel? Is that your thing? I think it is, and it's particularly so. It's sort of agriculture, particularly. It's research. It's new knowledge. It's uh, you know the thing that you know. There's that Winston Churchill quote about never give up on something that you think about every day. Okay, um, and one of the things I think about every day is how do we make use of this new knowledge that we're just churning out every day? You know, we've got a sort of you know the butter mountains. We've got like a a knowledge glut. 
it's this knowledge that the universities around the world are, you know, are creating these new te- early stage technologies are sort of sitting there and not getting out. So that's been a lot of my, you know, my interest is how do you get it out and how do you get it out in a way that we create a future that people want? So I really like this idea of, you know, research. They talk about, you know, um, sort of, um, you know, there's all different approaches to engaging the public's industry with research. But I, I love this idea of research with society, not for society. And so in, in terms of how you build and structure your teams, you know, I have a, I have a view that kind of those people that build and maintain vibrant cultures, they're, they're good at doing all of the basics. So a little bit of maverick, there's a little bit of outsider about them. They like to do slightly different things. Rachel, do you take the take the, the, that, that approach to building your teams? You know, what are some, some things that you do to, to bring people together and generate uh, collaborative work? That's a really interesting you say that because I think you have to do things that, are, that people find a bit cringy sometimes. So you do, you know, you can't just make it like an everyday um, event. Look, there's, I guess there's, um, for the work I do, there's two things that really require you to think about the culture you're, you're creating. I need to have teams that are diverse. If you're going to get research moving from one place to another, and I don't just mean, um, you know, gender and ethnicity and, and sexuality, they're, they're really important as well. But I mean, diverse ways of thinking and diverse expertise. So I need that diversity to be built in. And of course, the other the place where culture is really important is uh, creating change. So if you want people to do things differently, you've, you're going to have to think about how you're going to make it possible, create that appetite. In terms of um, creating the diverse teams, I think, you know, there's um, a couple of things. One is creating a safe place for people to be heard, to feel that their expertise is respected, that you can say foolish things, that you can get it wrong. I think that's incredibly important. When I was teaching science writing uh, way back in the US at Hopkins, you know, one way I did this was um, I needed them to understand that you need people's feedback. You've just got to take it. We can't be praising one another all the time. And what I did is um, I gave them all a draft uh, news story and I, I told them, and I wouldn't do this again because it, it involved deceit, but I told them that this had been written by a, you know, a fledgling new um, science writer. Could they all edit it? Okay, and they all got to, you know, tore it to shreds, told, you know, this is wrong and this is wrong. And then I could say to them, well, actually, I wrote that piece. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's like, um, but, you know, but I had to stand there and say, I wrote that and, you know, I'm going to take your feedback. Um, and that was a really great lesson to, to learn that we have to, if we're going to perform and work well together, we have to be able to take feedback. Um, and it should be called negative, you know, because it's you just you've got to find out how you can improve. I think it's really important to see your team as a team of experts and make sure that you defer to the experts in the team. And everybody, even the most junior person, will be an expert, even if it's the expert of you know they're from you know what their generation is experiencing. Experiencing. I think that's very important. I think watching your own biases is really important. So, you know, I have to be really aware, you know, so just how I was brought up, I still, if somebody says doctor or professor, I know I'm thinking that that person's male. And I know that because when I, it's revealed that they're female, I get that little sort of frisson of embarrassment. Okay? So I absolutely know I have these internal biases and I've got to be really clear on that. So when I'm hiring, I'm making sure I'm not just getting same old same old. So that, that's a sort of, you know, creating a safe place. I think there's also people need to belong. And this is why people don't create 
diverse teams because we all go to the people we know to our own tribes and speak our own jargon and we look the same you know might you might carry a particular bag you might you know wear certain clothes we've all seen it so to help people belong in a diverse team you have to make diversity the thing you have to make it very um clear that that's what you're trying to create and that we want that to happen so I think so helping people belong I think you have to be really um, clear that we're going to use plain language we're not going to use jargon you have to make it so that people will pick one another up if they start using jargon um, in terms of the cringy things I think are really valuable I think um getting people to do like mini masterclasses about what their speciality is is great and they should be routine and regular um you know what you know good day bad day what's a good day for um a software developer what's a bad day what's a good day bad day for an academic researcher i think those are all um really important Fantastic. Do we keep going? Oh my gosh, I just, I just so much stuff. I and love I'll tell you my favourite <laughs> trick. Favorite. Oh, I don't know if it's the trick, but I think the thing that's overlooked is introductions. Okay. So you can be working at a big organisation like the University of Melbourne, 10,000 people, and you can be working alongside people, and you can think, I actually have no idea what. Fred over there does. I have no idea what the background is, where they fit in. Okay. And then we, so I think when you're having meetings where there are people who don't know each other, you've got to take time on those introductions to explain to people who they're working with. So they know what skills they share in common, but they also know when they're going to have to. So they, there may be places where using the jargon is really appropriate, but there may be other places where they're going to have to help upskill one another so those introductions i think and also it helps people feel like they belong as well so i think they're critically important well it does it, it builds connections and i often think that yeah. people are lazy with those introductions you know when i run my workshops i have a bunch of different ones you know i get people to tell a family story you know you know a three minute where am i from you know kind of what were my what did my parents or guardians instill in me i think as well often we get job title Tourette's. hello i'm colin i'm a people yes. and culture <laughs> manager it's like i'm really not interested in that at all like what is it that you do actually on a day-to-day basis you know i think yeah. i think they're the kinds of things that that build connections yeah i love this i love this idea as well rachel it's just just lastly on this a little bit foolish I think we forget sometimes that we're all human beings. We bring, sometimes we bring a certain persona to work. You know, I always try and encourage this when I'm helping teams build cultures is everyone's a human. We all make mistakes. We all make faux pas. It's not about being a perfect specimen. In fact, what it's actually about is being an imperfect specimen and doing the best that you can on your job. Yeah. But recognizing that if, it, if something goes wrong, it's okay. And that's that fundamental safety I think you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. You know, years ago, I um, did, when I was in the US, I, I did karate very regularly. We had t- our T-shirts said on them, perfection is an obstacle, not a goal, um, which is sort of funny when you're doing karate because, you know, if you get it wrong, you're going to lose your teeth or something. <laughs> but I, I, I do think that's really, you know, you've just got to keep, your, you've got to keep looking at that because you're never, no project's outcomes are going to be perfect. No person is going to perform perfectly. And if you have somebody who's got that sort of aura of perfection, you've got to be a bit suspicious about your own, you know, what, what are you sort of projecting onto them because nobody is perfect i love that i'm now going to make that the motto of the podcast perfection is the obstacle and not the goal dr rachel novak i want to say a huge i feel like i could talk to you for at least another four hours Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the culture makers podcast today thank you Thanks so much for listening to the Culture Makers podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to get notified when new episodes are released. 
If you've been inspired by today's guest, please share the link with your friends, family or networks. If you'd like to continue your learning journey, then why not join our virtual community of culture makers where our members share ideas to help them get a little bit better every day. You can find out more at www.culturemakers.community.